welcome to Professor Dave Debates. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. We have a wonderfully relevant episode today. Climate is in the news. Climate has been in the news for years. It's nothing new. But uh, a lot of the discussion is centered around energy sources and trying to find renewable energy sources so that we can get rid of the ones that are doing harm to the climate. And uh, in my eyes, the most promising of these is fusion energy. And fusion energy is not well understood by the public. It's also not very well funded. Um, but this really could be the answer to all of our problems regarding energy and consequently also climate. So we're going to talk about fusion energy today. And to help us is Peter Hoyer, who is a PhD student in plasma physics, working in the UCLA High Energy Density Plasma Group. So uh, certainly uh, he knows his stuff and he's going to take us through this. We're going to talk about, first of all, what fusion is, um, just to make sure everyone's on the same page. And uh, then we're going to talk about where we're at with fusion energy research, uh, when we might be able to expect this technology to arrive and uh, what, what that will mean for humanity and the future of humanity. So this is a great conversation. Here is me with Peter Hoyer discussing Can Fusion Solve the Energy Crisis? Hey everyone, we're here with Peter Hoyer, and we're going to be talking about fusion. We want to figure out if this is going to be the solution to our energy needs. Um, but first things first, uh, Peter, for those who maybe are not so savvy on the subject, we need to just get the basics out of the way. What is fusion? So fusion is the process that powers the sun and other stars. And basically what happens is you have the insides of two atoms connect together uh, and form a heavier atom. So for example, you could have two cores of two hydrogen atoms going really fast and stick together and they produce a helium um, nuclei or it's a helium atom mm -hmm. and in the process that generates a bunch of energy so so protons and neutrons are whizzing around in the sun because it's so hot right uh, and then they slam together and what what's going on when they slam together so basically what happens is because they're positively charged they have some natural repulsion mm -hmm. so you can't just bring two protons together slowly and expect them to stick together right but there's a second force called the strong nuclear force that when you bring the protons together fast enough, they will stick together. So electromagnetic force is saying, no, stay away. But if you slam them together, then there's another force they, that makes them stick. Right. Okay. And in physics terms, when we talk about a gas where the particles are moving really fast, so like that, we just call that a high temperature. Mm -hmm. So what you need for these fusion reactions to happen is a very high temperature gas or a plasma. Mm -hmm. And what is, where does the energy come from, though? We stick them together, and then what, what, why does that make energy? I don't... So it's a bit of a complicated question, but yeah. basically the total energy that you get from E equals mc squared when you add everything up for a helium atom is actually less than two hydrogen atoms. Mm -hmm. so, and um, the same actually works for a little while as you keep going up the periodic table. So you're liberating some energy because the helium atom is more energetically favorable than two separate hydrogens. So the universe kind of wants that to happen. Okay. So, and, and some of the mass, so E equals MC squared, M mass, E energy, we lose some of that mass. Right. And it just becomes energy. So another way to say it would be that two hydrogens is slightly heavier than helium. Okay. Got it. So, um, okay. So that's what's going on in the sun. And so that's... 
that's different when when we think of nuclear energy we usually think of power plants right on the simpsons right. homer works at the power plant what are those that's different right what's going on there so that's a fission reaction which okay. is the other kind of nuclear reaction and this happens at the other end of the periodic table so mm -hmm. where fusion is taking two nuclei and putting them together um, to get energy at the other end of the periodic table we've got heavy uh, atoms like uranium and those fall apart to get energy mm -hmm. so where the helium atom weighed slightly more or slightly less sorry than the hydrogen mm -hmm. atom uh the, the uranium is gain, releasing energy when it breaks apart okay so uh it's just the opposite process basically so fission we've got these huge nuclei with hundreds or you know what 200 something nucleons the protons and neutrons in there and that breaks apart and that releases energy right basically what's happening is the most energetically favorable uh, element is iron. Mm -hmm. So everything that's lighter than iron, you can fuse together and get some energy out. Mm -hmm. And everything that's heavier than iron, you can break apart and get some energy out. Oh, right. And that's why iron is so abundant in the universe. Right? Exactly. That's why we've got iron cores at the center of all the planets, because everything's kind of converging towards iron. What is that again? That's just sort of, it's got the optimal proton to neutron ratio or something like that? Yeah, if you make a graph of the stability of the mm -hmm. uh, of the nuclei versus the number of protons and neutrons, you end up with iron being the minimum. So mm -hmm. all the matter eventually gets to iron and it kind of gets stuck and never wants to move away. So so we've done fission. So we, we do that well, right? We know how to do yeah. that and we make energy. And I mean, okay, well, later we'll talk about maybe some of the things that went wrong with fission. <laughs> but um, so fusion now, that's, again, as we said, the totally different process. So we're saying this is what's going on in the sun. So how do we do that? here we don't have we you know the sun is too hot uh, how do we do it right so the sun has a massive advantage over us which is that it's gigantic mm -hmm. so the sun just uses gravity yeah. and just pile on so much material and the temperature gets hotter and hotter and higher and higher pressure until fusion happens kind of effortlessly in the center mm -hmm. uh, on earth that's not really a strategy that we can do so what we have to do is find other ways to create really high temperatures and densities um, of gas, which becomes a plasma um, when it gets hot enough, um, to do fusion. And the challenge of doing that on Earth is to hold the gas in a, pl in a place, the plasma in a, in, a, in a bottle, so to speak, mm -hmm. long enough for that to happen um, without it just touching the walls and dissipating away. Mm -hmm. So what, what are the, because, you know, we can't just do it in like a box or, or any old thing. What, what are some of these materials? Um, so there's two main ways of, of doing fusion. And both of them use a fuel that mixture. It would basically be um, a mixture of hydrogen isotopes. So it's deuterium and tritium usually, which are just different numbers of neutrons in hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So that's the fuel. Um, and then the challenge is how you hold it. And there's two main approaches to doing that. So the first is takes advantage of the fact that when a gas gets ionized and becomes a plasma, it can get kind of stuck to magnetic field lines. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't like to go across the magnet magnetic field because when it, it ionizes so we've got just the nuclei we've got charged particles not right. no longer neutral so and, and once they're charged there's all these strong electromagnetic forces acting on them and they just get stuck in magnetic fields mm -hmm. and they don't like to move so so we're sort of like it, they just kind of hover and then we make we use magnetism to make them kind of hover in a spot exactly it's, okay. it's kind of like those levitating frog demos where it can't touch anything right if it touches right. stuff it's so hot it's gonna just burn through any material that it would touch exactly okay and so um the first so the first idea you might have is just to make a straight magnetic field and put the plasma in that and mm -hmm. let it fuse 
But the problem is uh, the plasma is very quickly going to go at the ends of your magnetic field since mm -hmm. you can't make it infinitely long. Mm -hmm. So the, the next idea that scientists had, this is all happening back in like the 1950s and 60s. The next idea that scientists had was to wrap the magnetic field around in kind of like a donut shape or mm -hmm. a torus. A torus, yeah. And um, this is a configuration that's called a tokamak. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea there is that the plasma will just go around in circles and it gets stuck and you can wait for it to do a fusion. Mm -hmm. And it turns out to not be that simple because once the plasma gets to sitting around and realizes it can't goes out, go at the ends, there's a bunch of different other mechanisms that still allow it to escape across the field. Oh, weird. Okay. So we think it's going to be in a circle and it's just almost like a particle accelerator kind of. Right. And it's, they're all going to just swim in there, but then they don't do that. They do, what do they do? So if you only have a few particles, they do that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why scientists were so optimistic initially that fusion was going to be pretty easy because oh, wow. this just seemed like it was going to work great. Mm -hmm. uh, but what ends up happening is you add more and more particles, it adds pressure um, and the particles start to kind of squirt across the magnetic field lines through these processes called diffusion processes. Mm -hmm. Um, and this, there's a whole zoo of these processes that have to do with particles interacting with each other or um, particles interacting with the magnetic field in, in nonlinear, complicated ways. And the, basically, the higher you increase the density, the closer you get to fusion conditions, the more these little problems start happening and you get little bits of the plasma squirting out and touching the walls. Okay. And then it just, then something gets set on fire and then the whole place is a mess. Or... So actually, no. And that's one of the nice things about fusion mm -hmm. as an energy source is um, when... If you have what, what they call that's a, it's called a disruption, where the plasma gets out of control, mm -hmm. um, the plasma uh, is extremely hot, but it's also extremely low mass. So when it touches the walls, it just cools down really fast. Okay, okay. So this happens every day, lots of times in a lot of fusion labs, and all that happens is you lose your plasma, and you're kind of done with fusion for that try. Okay, okay. So that's obviously a huge advantage over fission because all of the disasters that we may have heard of, of Chernobyl and all these things, nuclear fallout. What is nuclear fallout? What does that mean? Right. So the problem with a fission reactor is that you're basically building a bomb and then stopping it from blowing up. You're, <laughs> you're, you're slightly uh, decreasing the reaction rate so that it's stable. But you always have the potential um, that you have to try and control with your design. You have the potential for a catastrophic explosion or a meltdown, which is where the uranium actually melts and becomes very hard to contain. Um, and so that's always a possibility. We do a pretty good job of dealing with that with today's fu uh, fission power plants, but it's, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. With fusion, you don't have that problem. It's so darn difficult to do in the first place that um, it's very sensitive. And if any of the conditions are ever just not quite right, it, the whole process just fizzles out. It just stops working. Yeah. So you lose some energy at the moment, mm -hmm. but you're not going to blow up the power plant. So that's a very important thing for people to understand because I think because both of these processes can be categorized as nuclear energy right. or nuclear power, I think people have a tendency to group them together and just picture those, what are those... Uh, uh, those the big smokes. Yeah, the, those things steam and, towers. and everything's going wrong and, and we're all going to die. But I think it's important for people to realize that this is not they're just they're they're similar in that they are nuclear processes, but they are not date. We're not dealing with radioactive material. We're dealing with hydrogen nuclei. Right. Yeah. So so a, a fusion power plant does create some mild radioactive materials. Mm -hmm. um, and depends. Tritium. Yeah, there's the tritium, mm -hmm. which is radioactive. That's one of the fuels that you need in small amounts. And then there is some, when you're doing all these fusion reactions, you can create some radioactive materials on the inside of the chamber. Mm -hmm. um, and there's different schemes for dealing with that. Um, the main advantage is that there's a small amount of waste you're producing in a fusion plant. 
and the the way that the radioactive material is created, it usually has a half life of you know fifty to hundred years or something like that, mm-hmm. as opposed to nuclear waste from a fission power plant, which can be around for you know millennia. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's much more. It's not a, you know it's it's not that that fusion power plants are perfect in this respect, but the waste is a lot easier to handle. Yeah, many orders of magnitude safer and more practical. Right. And now my, oh, an interesting question is how many more how many orders of magnitude more power? How much more power do we generate from from fusion than fission? So, in terms of just E equals mc squared, mm-hmm. um, it's a lot more power. And you could like power a hundred times or like, how yeah, on, on the mm-hmm. order of hundreds or thousands, it depends exactly what metric you want right. to use, you know, like power per weight or right. something like that. Um, you're talking about something where you could potentially power a city the size of LA or New York for days on a gallon of, of fuel, a gallon of fuel. Like yeah. you go and get a gallon of gas. <laughs> e, e equals MC squared yeah. produces big numbers really quickly. It's true. Yeah. That C squared, that pesky C squared. What is it, 10, 10 to the 8? And then, and then squared. 10 to yeah. the 16. Right, that's a, many orders of magnitude. Okay, so that is fascinating because that means that, you know, whereas like a fission plant services, what, a state or a portion of a state or something like that, mm-hmm. one facility of that size now would certainly be powering the United States. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. We don't know enough now to really know how these reactors will end up looking. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. definitely the amount of power that the reactor can put out will, will not be limited by the fusion process. Right. There'll be at some point, there'll be limitations of, you know, melting the, the chambers and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but fusion itself is, is not going to be the limiting right. factor. And maybe how do we, like, let's say there's a centralized fusion, rea- fusion reactor in Nebraska. Uh, how, how does that power get disseminated Right. across the United States. That's a practical issue. Right. But the power will be there. We'll, we'll have it. So um, so you, you mentioned the tokamak. That's where, Japan? Where do they do that? So there's one, there's one big tokamak that they're building currently in France. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the ITER reactor. Um, and that's, that's the, the tokamak of the future that everyone's really focused on. But there's a, a couple of big tokamaks in Asia. Um, there's a couple of tokamaks in America. There's a couple of tokamaks in um, Western Europe. So that's just the name of the shape of the, or the design, really. Right. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a design that came out of the Soviet Union um, and then kind of gained popularity. There are there are a couple other different magnetically confinement projects um, that are slightly different, called stellarators. Um, mm-hmm. They all f- still follow this general principle of tracking trapping the plasma in in a loop using a magnetic field. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there is one other um, method of of doing fusion that I didn't mention yet, and this is called inertial confinement fusion, and this is a totally different approach to how you would generate a fusion reaction. And basically the idea is that you take a, a pellet of your fuel and you just let it sit there and then you hit it really hard from all directions simultaneously. Okay. And you try and compress it down super small, like a factor of 30 compression. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, it's going to get really dense and really hot and it's going to then expand and blow up. But if you in that moment where it's really small before it expands, you can do some fusion reactions. Mm-hmm. So the trick would be, if you want to do it this way, is to hit the pellet so fast and so hard that it creates enough fusion reactions in that you know microsecond that that's the power for your reactor, and you just do that over and over again. So there's a facility in Livermore, California, doing this with lasers uh, right now, um, and a couple other uh, groups working around that around the United States as well. Fascinating. Okay, so we've got more than one way. There's more than one one way to skin the fusion cat. Yeah. Um, okay, so now, which one shows more promise? Or for, or for example, this what is in this France, the tokamak in France? What is the key improvement that is got everyone optimistic about it? 
so the the story for fusion energy over the past you know 50 years has been continual progress upwards especially as machines get bigger and bigger um and in the magnetic confinement um side of the story especially the larger a machine is the easier it is to manage those those pesky ways that the particles go across the Mm -hmm. magnetic field so people are excited about this token mic they're building in France because it's just simply much bigger. This is bigger. Yeah, and the the simulations show that this should be able to pretty easily reach the the break even condition where you get more energy out from fusion than you put in. Right. Um and so people are excited about that. It's not a reactor yet, but right. it could maybe be the last step before a reactor. Right, because that's an important thing to to mention, right? We we can do fusion, but at at current we're, we're we've gotten close to break even, right? We're yeah. we're all we're making almost as much energy as we're putting in, right? So so uh, I think, um, you know, twenty thirty years ago, people were talking about being you know many orders of magnitude away from break even. Now we're definitely within a factor of ten, depending on on which approach you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so yeah, it is important to note though that it's very easy to do fusion. There's actually a long list of amateurs um, that have done this in your in their garages. There's simple machines you can do that'll do fusion. It costs a few thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a cool science project, but it's not going to power anything because it takes right. way more electricity to run the machine than you're ever going to get out. It takes a million dollars to get a penny of <laughs> fusion right. energy. Yeah. So the so what we're trying to do is to get the reaction to burn mm-hmm. to, to basically self-propagate long enough that yeah. it creates way more power than you had to, to, to spark it. Right. Get a, find a way to siphon off the energy being produced to run back into the machine, keep it going. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So just bigger, right? So it's, it's the same philosophy as a particle accelerator, just make and make, make a bigger one. And right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's see. So we're close. We're within about one order of magnitude of, of the break even. Uh, so wh- what do we think? We think maybe this one in France is going to do it? Yeah, that's the current consensus, I think, mm-hmm. amongst the magnetic confinement people. Um, they're also pretty close to reaching break-even in, in Livermore, California, at the National Ignition Facility, which mm-hmm. is the inertial confinement approach. Um, so it's kind of any man's race so far. Okay, so maybe California will have the first one, and then we'll just secede from it's possible. the United States and have free energy for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so now... All right, let's say we get to well above the break-even, and uh, we now have this this option. We have this resource. I, I, I have a hard time. I don't understand that much about energy sources and how it's converted into, like, what's in the electrical socket, you know? Where, where would we need to be such that fusion is now our sole energy source and uh, fossil fuels are gone? Everything is good, right? Anything non-renewable is just gone from the face of the earth forever. So there's some fancy... Um methods of getting energy from a fusion reactor and um i don't know too much about those those are kind of way off in the future Uh, the simplest way of getting energy from a fusion reactor works just like a nuclear power plant or a coal power plant where you just use the heat generated by these reactions to boil water and then you run the water through a turbine just like our conventional power plants so almost certainly at least the first generation of fusion power plants would work like that Mm -hmm. um and there's nothing really wrong with it it's perfectly uh you know relatively efficient and um we could be running entirely on fusion power that way. You don't really need any other technical innovations. They just might help. Wow. So, yeah, we don't have to innovate anything. We're really just using the same technology in terms of the dissemination of the energy, but just it's a new source. Everything else about the grid would be be the same. you know, you might have to upgrade it for all the extra electricity we'd be able to get. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, basically, we would just be picturing a clean energy source that can run day or night, independent of weather, 
um, and not affect the environment while generating very low cost electricity. That's bananas. <laughs> yeah, that's so, the goal. So then, I mean, why we should all, it, this sounds so good. It sounds almost too good to be true. What could go wrong? Because it seems like we're 10, 15 years away from having fusion energy, right? Is there some block or some, some roadblock? So the first major problem is political. Um, fusion uh, af- after the the you know Manhattan Project and at- atomic energy was beginning to become a thing, um, people were very not physicists were very excited about fusion energy back in the '60s, and they were pretty sure this was going to happen in a few years, and they told everybody that. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of money thrown at the problem, and understandably, people got frustrated when we found out that it was a lot harder than we thought it was at first glance. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when fusion kind of got this impression of our. Um, of being, you know, always in the future and impossible to do. The, the other problem is there have been a few high-profile claims to have done fusion in easier ways. Um, talking about cold fusion. Yeah, and I do want to get into that. So, yeah, we can talk about that. But basically, people, people have claimed that they were able to do fusion in easy ways, and it's been a big... Um, publicity disaster. Mm-hmm. And that's made it difficult to get funding for fusion research. Okay, so it's just... It's the jokers, it's the... It's the scandal. It's all that stuff. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's hard to say, but um, th- there were some projections as to how long it would take to get to fusion um, power plants. They were made back in the early 90s, I think. And they projected, you know, different deadlines for when we'd have a fusion power plant based mm-hmm. on the funding levels. And um, you can look up this chart online. You know, there's, if you spend this much, you can get it by 1999. You spend this much, you get it by 2010. The amount that we've actually spent on fusion research has been almost barely on the graph. Mm-hmm. And we're still making substantial progress. The fusion mm-hmm. yields actually obey a similar uh, law to Moore's law for okay. transistors, where the, the triple product, uh, which is a measure of how successful a tokamak is, has been increasing, doubling every two years, uh, okay. like transistor speeds. Very nice. So we're making substantial progress, even though there's not that much money being spent on it. So we just need, uh, Fusion needs a PR campaign, essentially. Yeah, it needs a Manhattan Project, you know, a, a concerted effort to try and push it over the edge. Okay. But failing that, we'll still be there in 20 years, probably? Yeah, you know, 2050, I, I think probably in the next, you know, 100 years. It, it's hard to say exactly. Well, better be sooner than 100. I want to see it. <laughs> yeah. But that, that is an important thing to mention is that while fusion, I think it, it's misleading to say that it's forever off in the future, it's also not you know five years away. We've got a lot of work to do um, based on where we are now, based on what we've accomplished so far. Mm-hmm. And so that means that while fusion might eventually solve the long-term energy crisis that we're facing as a species, it's not enough to just you know abandon solar energy and all the other renewables right, right. now and throw our eggs in the fusion basket because mm-hmm. we could still um, you know, ruin the climate and 50 years from now still be working out the kinks yeah. in, in fusion. Yeah, because we've got infrastructure in solar and wind, and that's already got some momentum. So And, yeah. and, and that, that not surprisingly, doesn't need so much of a PR campaign. Right. Everyone's on board with the sun and the wind. and the <laughs> Which is ultimately still, when you think about it, fusion yeah. power at the end of the day, because you're getting your, it's just fusion power by way of the sun. Mm-hmm. So we're just talking about eventually doing this more directly here. Yeah. We're do, why, why take the runoff from the sun when we can just do what the sun does? <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the other thing, you know, I, I, I love renewable energies um, and they're, they're great, but uh, you could potentially imagine if we completely converted to renewables, being able to power the world as it is right now on purely renewable energy. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to imagine uh, creating a world where you say have 20 billion people and they all have the same technological quality of life um, that we have here in America. 
where you're going to get the energy for that from a purely renewable um, grid, it's going to be really difficult. So mm -hmm. that's what I see as the big benefit of fusion is if you go 50, 100 years in the future um, and you have all these people and you want them all to be able to have an air conditioner and a refrigerator, um, you need to have a stable baseload power supply that can right. do and, that. And one that doesn't necessarily depend as much on the conditions of the earth right. as it is now because we've got sun and wind. What if something terrible happens? And it, 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 I mean, obviously the sun's not going anywhere. Yeah. But what if the amount of solar energy reaching the earth is cut in half suddenly for some reason because of what's going on in the atmosphere or who knows what? I mean, yeah. I don't even know what I'm talking about, but you know, it's a gamble. Exactly. It yeah. would be it would be nice to be able to do this ourselves mm -hmm. and not have to rely on the sun um, yeah. for the energy kind of secondhand. Or a combo. But what we definitely want to get rid of is fossil fuels and anything that is doing harm right. to our surroundings. Yeah. Okay, so cold fusion, what is this? It's it's rubbish, right? So in principle it's it's possible. Mm -hmm. It's just that the ways that have been proposed uh, don't work. Well, let me see if I understand it. So cold fusion, obviously, meaning not these insanely high temperatures, but it seems that these insanely high temperatures are required to get the particles moving fast enough such that they overcome electromagnetic repulsion and fuse. So how could they get so close together if they're not moving so, so fast? Right. So the idea is that you use some trick, you know, maybe it's some quantum chemistry or, or something on the edge of physics that we don't bar barely understand, and you can kind of persuade the atoms to get close enough together, even though you can kind of overcome that repulsion through some quantum mechanical trick or something. But that just sounds um, like magic, right? When people say quantum mechanics that don't know what quantum mechanics are, that means magic. Right. So, so that's the problem. We don't yet know what mm -hmm. this way would be to do it. There's right. been a couple high-profile people who have uh, claimed that they've been able to do it, and it's never been reproduced. It's always been right. shown that there was something wrong with their experiment. Yeah. So in, in this is, I, I would put this in the, you know, couple hundred years in the future or never box right. that it would be great and if you could build a power plant this way um you could have one in your car but we're we don't ha even understand as opposed to hot fusion where we know the physics and we, we're really close to getting to work mm -hmm. with cold fusion we don't even know that the physics exists right well, there is no clear path to there's no there's nothing to suggest that it is possible that we cannot rule it out definitively but right now, okay, so we said, now I do have another, okay, so we don't want one in our car. That'd be a little bit dangerous for yeah. to turn our car into a weapon, but um, but a spaceship, right? Yeah. Because that's the key. That's how we're going to get to, uh, you know, other systems. So would it have to be cold fusion? Is there a way that we could get, you know, this is obviously another couple hundred years after we've perfected large-scale fusion plants on Earth, but... Mm -hmm. You know, once you, you know, w once we made a computer that was the size of a room, eventually we made it smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And now it's in our pockets. Right. So could we do that with a fusion reactor? Yeah, there, there's, I don't see any physics reason why you couldn't. It's, mm -hmm. it's much easier to build them on large scale. So we'd be looking at, you know, many, many generations of, of improvements to do something like that. In some sense, fusion power plants are the perfect power plants for, say, interstellar space travel. Um, because the interstellar space is filled with a low volume of hydrogen gas. Right. We could be collecting the material as we go. Right. And there are also, um, if you generate electricity that way, there are other plasma physics um, scientists who are working on thrusters that don't use fusion directly, but use plasmas to create highly efficient uh, thrusters for spacecraft. So it's, an, it's entirely possible that, mm -hmm. you know, many hundred years in the future, there could be fusion reactors in space. I think it has to happen because we essentially use combustion, right? Right. We're using what we use in our cars to go through space. 
And uh, so that's chemical energy. But then if we could use nuclear energy, I mean, what, how, you know, by what proportion, you know, what, what would be the difference there? How much faster could we go? Um, so, I mean, that would be, I'd have to conjecture a lot about future spacecraft design. Right. Um, I can say that, that with these non-fusion-related plasma thrusters, they are able to get um, small spacecraft to much higher velocities because they're many orders of magnitude more efficient mm-hmm. than, than combustion thrusters. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'd, you'd, it all depends how the technology pans out, but it, it could completely change the way space travel works. Absolutely, yeah. Because, I mean, I, I think I read how, how long, like the fastest thing that we've sent through the solar system it would take how long to get to Alpha Centauri? Like ten thousand years or something like that's, that. That's uh, something like that. I yeah. mean, that's just too long. We got to get that number down. Yeah. And I wonder if fusion could do it. Where could we could fusion? We could get there in maybe fifty years or well, something. Yeah. And the the great thing to me about fusion energy is that you know I don't know exactly how the future is going to pan out, and but uh, once you have energy, you can do a lot of things with it. There's a lot mm-hmm. of science that we're not able to implement into technology right now. Um, because we don't have the energy, you know, we can make fresh water out of seawater. It's just very energy intensive. Mm-hmm. So if you if you have enough energy to throw at a problem, suddenly there's a lot more solutions that start to be viable. Actually, that's perfect because um, th- we can kill two birds with one stone. We're we're melting the glaciers, so the sea levels are rising. There's <laughs> people who don't have any water to drink. Let's right. just start drinking the ocean as the <laughs> sea levels rise. We'll save Miami that way. The technology already exists to do that. You just need so much electricity that right now it's just not economical. Mm-hmm. So if you have you know very cheap electricity you you could make desalination plants on a large scale and and you know give people clean drinking water that way so what is, i mean there is it lobbies well because to me fusion it sounds like it's the solution to all of our problems <laughs> so why aren't we dumping money onto it it's just it's really hard to do and it's really hard to persuade people to spend you know we're talking on the scale of tens of billions of dollars for right. these experiments and uh, the, if you look, for example, at the reactor in France, it's not. Uh, it's been they've been working on that for ten or twenty years now. Where do they get the money? Um, we, from the U.S. government, in part. It's a collaboration of of governments. Um, mm-hmm. But if that reactor is not even expected to turn on until twenty thirty five, so you're asking governments oh, to man. put quite a lot of money on 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 the the board now for maybe a fusion reactor in fifty years. It's right. just really difficult to sell people on on that long term of a prospect. Yeah, we just need to get more efficient with our spending. We've got all this money in defense, and uh, why don't we just take a little bit out of there? Yeah, it, it, we we've, would love to see a lot more money being spent on, on fusion research. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, the, these magnetic confinement um, experiments are kind of done throughout the world, but America is really the world's leader in these inertial confinement experiments. We have most of the world's leading facilities, mm-hmm. uh, big lasers that where we do this. Um, and so it'd be great to, you know, the U.S. government does support that pretty well. But the more money you throw at it, the, the more facilities you can build, the faster you can make progress. So this method is like the American way of doing fusion. We're kind of the only ones doing it. It's kind of turned into that. Some other countries are working on it a little bit, but all the premier facilities, I think, currently are here. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Paving the way. Exactly. Much as we <laughs> have done in times of war. Yeah. Is it going to take... A worldwide crisis is it going to take? I, I don't know if it would be a World War War Three or or if it would just be, you know, finally feeling in a very significant way the ramifications of climate change before people just are we going to get to that point where it's almost too late to when people finally start acting? 
I certainly hope not. Mm-hmm. We're we're making progress as, as fast as we can now. Um, and, and the hope is to, to have the foundation ready for whatever needs to be done with this knowledge, um, to have that ready when people finally realize they need it. Um, we want we want to make as much progress as we can now before it becomes you know an even bigger crisis. Yeah, I it's if I worry that it's down to the wire. You know what I mean? Like, what year will the Earth become nearly unlivable? Let's say twenty forty four, and that'll be the the twenty forty three. We're like, we got it. <laughs> We're ready to go. Turn yeah. it on. Flip the switch. It's possible. I guess we can't change how how we've spent the money in the past. So. All we can do now is, is you know, continue to rely on the renewables that we have, and then, in in my mind, you know, spend as much effort as we can on on fusion energy and try to make this a reality as soon as possible. Absolutely. So, how can? Okay, I'm a science communicator. How, what can I do? How can I help? So, I think it, what's important is to spread the news about fusion research to the public, um, but also we want to try and make sure that people. We want to balance people's expectations. Um, because fusion, I think, has been damaged a lot in, in, the, in the past, both by people saying that it's never going to happen and that it's impossible, which isn't true, but also by people claiming that, you know, fusion energy is going to be here any minute. And, you know, oh, look at this, this, this news story shows that it's just around the corner. And we, we, what we want to do is balance people's expectations that we need to spend money on this now and that within your lifetime, potentially, this could revolutionize the world. But it's really hard. So we have sensationalist journalism to to blame in both directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's either just uh, it's happening now. Click click on this, and you'll see the amazing thing that's going to happen tomorrow. And then the like this will never happen, and this is a farce. Exactly. It's just it's really difficult to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's tough because it's really that way in all areas of science and and medicine and everything. And it's sort of this vicious cycle whereby media outlets sort of cater to the way they think people want to consume their information. And it's not unbased because people kind of are, you know, putting forth that trend of how they consume information. But then they do it more and then people grow more accustomed to that. And it's just this weird memification of of information and, uh, and knowledge consumption that I think that's maybe one of the main problems in society. I think that's absolutely true. And one thing I also want to say is that, you know, fusion research is, is I think, extremely important. But we're also learning a lot of really interesting things along the way. So this we shouldn't think of this research that we're doing as purely being, you know, a boring grind where we're producing mm-hmm. eventually a power plant. Along the way, you know, the, the plasmas that are in these fusion reactors are very similar to most of what's out in space in astrophysics and in our own solar system. And so along the way to learning these things we need for a fusion reactor, we're also better understanding the solar system and the the universe. Um, So we're learning a lot of other stuff as we do this. It's good science independent of of fusion. What kind of stuff? So like we're learning more about stars and how stars work? Yeah, so there's, for, for example, um, there's these coronal mass ejections that come off the sun Oh yeah. Um, that send big blobs of plasma towards the Earth that can destroy power grids and cause, you know, take out communication satellites. Um, the, the plasma physics, the, those, those coronal mass ejections are, are being contained by magnetic fields on the sun. So there's a lot of the same physics going on there as is happening in a magne- magnetic confinement plasma um, reactor. Um, there's also, if you have one of these... CMEs, coronal mass ejections, coming towards the Earth, and it hits the Earth's bow shock, um, which is kind of a magnetic shield in front of the Earth that protects it from the solar wind. Mm-hmm. That physics is a lot like what's happening in the inertial confinement uh, fusion um, 
laser reactors. Mm -hmm. So we're learning a lot about all these systems, which is independent of fusion, really good knowledge to have if you're going to you know, be putting satellites up around the Earth and depending on them for things like GPS. Right. If we're doing all this science that's mimicking the science of the sun, clearly we're going to learn about the sun. Yeah. Yeah. And these solar flares. Yeah. That's the, that. That's the same thing, right? It was mm -hmm. a solar flare. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that is fascinating to see what, kind of what the sun does and how that how that gets to us and how that affects us. We used to be able to say that that plasma is made up ninety nine percent of the universe. Mm -hmm. um, and now dark matter has come along, and no one's exactly sure how much of that there let's, is let's take a hot tangent yeah and so talk about dark matter so I, I don't know much about that but now now we can still say that 99 percent of the visible, visible universe yeah. is plasma and so and what that really means is that most of the visible matter is stars is stars yeah. exactly and so if you want to understand the universe it's important to understand how plasmas work absolutely see we're just making this laundry list i think i need to make some tutorials on on fusion what would be great is if i get to a point where i can like visit these facilities and be like see what's going on let me tell you how yeah. this works here yeah that would be really cool <laughs> i strive for that <laughs> do you uh have you ever visited any of these kinds of facilities yeah i've been to see um my my phd research is related to large lasers and plasmas mm -hmm. so, so i've, I've been, been to, to a livermore couple places i've not been to livermore i've been to another one in rochester new york mm -hmm. um, which is kind of the second largest laser and we have a quite a large laser also at UCLA that I work on um, mm -hmm. that we're not using for fusion research directly, but for similar plasma physics. And so how does that work? Because I, I, I love science, um, but I'm so daunted by instrumentation and engineering and that kind of stuff. And so if I, you know, I can think about molecules and atoms and all these things, but then when there's a machine there, I, I'm just like, how does this work? I don't even want, I don't even want to think about how this machine works. So do you have to learn so much about instrumentation? Yeah, and, and instrumentation is really one of the biggest challenges for fusion um, because the models we had initially of how it worked were very simplistic and um, they, didn't, they didn't work. Mm -hmm. And then we now have to do these experiments that take place over timescales of microseconds or in the case of the laser experiments, often nanoseconds. And you have to understand what's happening in these very small science time and space scales and you have to see it really clearly. So a lot of the work that's been done is developing very complicated microscope cameras and, and things like that that allow you to see. follow mm -hmm. what's happening. And uh, Because in this thing where you're saying you've got a pellet and then you're trying to put material onto it on all sides, then obviously everything has to be striking at the same picosecond essentially yeah. right so you need instrumentation that is capable of uh of timing that is that precise so picture when you're thinking about these experiments picture the pellet as being a water balloon okay and you have you and a bunch of friends say are going to all try and push on it at the same time and mm -hmm. you're going to try and collapse it down to be 130th the size of a water balloon mm -hmm. and what's going to happen eventually the water balloon is going to break and that's going to cause all sorts of problems. But even before it does, you know, you're all going to be pushing and maybe the guy on the other side pushes a little bit harder than you do and it gets squished and distorted. Right. Worst case would be now the water, if your fingers are spread out, the water balloon's coming between your fingers. That's like crazy little finger shaped instabilities, we call them. Mm -hmm. um, and all of this creates mixing in, in the fuel and can cause the outside of the pellet, which is plastic to get in with the fuel and dilute it basically. Mm -hmm. And so you really have to kind of smooth everything out and make a really nice clean compression. Mm -hmm. um, Unbelievably simultaneous and, and, and smooth around every single point of contact. Yeah, we're, we're talking about, you know, megajoules of laser energy distributed entirely perfectly evenly spherically symmetrically and within picoseconds of precision 
and it still manages to squirt out in little ways. So it's a really d- difficult problem. Even if we don't get fusion out of that, to even have been able to do that is pretty impressive. Yeah. So I, I've I've heard, I don't know by what metric someone evaluates this, but I've heard that, that the reactor that they're building in France, the ITER reactor, is the most technically complicated machine built by humans. Mm-hmm. Well, being built by humans is not done yet. Right. Yeah. How do we How do we measure something like that? How do we quantify the complicatedness yeah. Of, a, of a machine? Uh, yeah, but it, it is incredibly complicated. And in addition to the plasma physics, we're learning a lot about how nations can collaborate on that kind of a scale. It's a difficult mm-hmm. project to have seven or eight nation states coming together and building something that complicated where parts of it are being designed all and built all over the world and then have to come together to millimeter precision. Yes. I've always thought that, that the scientific community should serve as a model for political uh, collaborate or, you know, just how nations can get along, you know? Yeah. We don't see these boundaries and divisions. I should, there's, there is, I should say an advantage that fusion has politically, um, Mm -hmm. over fission power plants as well. Um, which is that the the fuel and the technology for right. a fusion power plant is completely unrelated, pretty much, to building a nuclear bomb. Um, you in a, in a hydrogen bomb, which is a bomb that uses fission, you still need a nuclear bomb with uranium or plutonium to set it off. And so you need that material, right? So and where is that material? Where do people mine for uranium? Somewhere in Africa, probably, right? Well, right now we're in this situation where 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 countries can have some uranium and they say they're using it for reactors, and we're not sure, and that's very messy. Mm-hmm. If everyone could have a fusion reactor then there'd be no good excuse for anyone to be having any uranium. Right. We could just say, give us your uranium. You don't need it anymore. And, mm-hmm. um, and the whole prolifer- proliferation problem would, would be a lot easier to solve. Right. And a fusion reactor is much different from because we had fusion bombs. Right. right. But a fusion bomb requires fission to initiate the fusion, I believe, right? Yes. So the, the, the fusion bombs, so I guess that's true. We have technically done break-even fusion on Earth. It's just we blew up <laughs> whole <laughs> islands. Yeah. Um, and that's clearly not a way to build a power plant. So the laser, the laser fusion approach is pretty similar to how a, a bomb works, mm-hmm. um, where you're just squeezing it together, except that in, instead of using a smaller bomb, you're using the lasers. So it's mm-hmm. a very small controlled explosion. The magnetic confinement approach is, is completely different, um, mm-hmm. not, not at all related physics-wise. So the, the, the materials and the processes by which we would produce a fusion reactor are not at all related to a fusion bomb, essentially. Right. They're not, they wouldn't be helpful. If, if, right. if you were a, a rogue nation state and you wanted to build a, a fission or a fusion bomb, um, having a fusion reactor doesn't wouldn't help, wouldn't you, help do that. you you still need fissionable material you still need your uranium and you yeah it's just a totally different thing exactly okay so uh we'll add to the list of ways fusion will save the world uh no more nuclear war exactly <laughs> no more uranium plutonium bombs etc yeah mm-hmm. well that's you're you're doing you're doing the good work here <laughs> what are you doing here get back to work yeah we've got stuff to do oh yeah <laughs> Okay, fusion. Now, so we pretty much covered fusion just as a flight of fancy uh, because, you know, I love space so much and I was thinking about, you know, putting a fusion reactor on a spaceship. What would be after that? What would be even better than fusion? I I think by the laws of physics that we know so far, there's no better way to create energy. Um, there, There are, what we're talking about for a fusion reactor now is a very simple kind of fusion where you take two hydrogens and you put them together, you get helium, um, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. In stars, 
they keep going on up the ladder and they continue to extract energy all the way as they take that helium and put it together to get lithium carbon and, and then yeah all the way up to iron yeah. and and so i guess in the distant future you could very hypothetically imagine a, a power plant that worked like that and left you with a big pile of iron at the end okay um but that that's so far in the future that um we if we could even do the that putting the hydrogen together to get helium, we, we would be set for we don't ha- millennia. We don't need more than that, yeah. Yeah, we have so much. The, the fuel, the deuterium, is, is in seawater. Mm-hmm. So um, the fuel is abundantly available for, for thousands of years on Earth. Um, Everywhere, commonly available to anyone who needs it. Exactly. That's The universe is funny that way, right? It, it sort of dangles all of these uh, uh, methods and fuels in front of us, but it makes us work for them. We've got to go through different uh, paradigm shifts of uh, of energy production. Yeah. Well, so what about um, like matter antimatter annihilation kind of stuff? So, so the problem with antimatter as an energy source is that it doesn't naturally exist, mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to hold. It's even probably harder to hold than a plasma is uh, to contain. So, I think if you were to use matter and antimatter in some way as an energy source, it would probably be more as a storage mechanism. You know, maybe maybe in the future they'll find a way to generate antimatter and store it, and it could be kind of like a really efficient battery. Okay. Um, but unless you find some planet somewhere made of antimatter, it, it isn't a very good way to make energy to begin with. Now, that would be nuts, right? Yeah. yeah, there's no way to know for sure that there isn't like a galaxy, an antimatter galaxy somewhere. But if there was, it'd probably be best if we stayed away. That's true. The, I will. Another thing that you can along that line of energy storage, you know, just because you build a fusion reactor doesn't mean that everything has to suddenly be, you know, lithium batteries storing power for your electric car and things. You can can also use this fusion power to do things like make hydrogen and then run fuel cells. Mm-hmm. So um, we could use this store this electricity in lots lots of different ways. It's not that everyone's necessarily going to have, you know what looks like an, an electric car or a battery laptop, a laptop battery. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a snap of the finger, complete transformation of everything we do across the board. It can, we are just sort of replacing where the, we're replacing the energy source. Right. And still using a lot of the same infrastructure. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, that's amazing. I mean, it just seems like there's nothing we won't be able to do with fusion. It, it really is the ultimate energy source. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, what the the only way we would sort of run out is if we start we just start multiplying like crazy, and we're we're colonizing many worlds, and all of a sudden, you know, we've got trillions or even quadrillions of of us, and uh, and we just we need more and more and more. Yeah, but you know, there's there's water on other planets too, and if if we, I, I feel like it's it would be difficult to get to a situation where. You can't do any better fusion than fusion, I guess. So mm-hmm. based on the laws of physics, once we have fusion, efficient fusion power plants, at that point, you know, if we did run into limits, they would be harder to overcome. Have you heard of the Kardashev scale? Yeah. So, yeah. So if, I guess fusion might, be, fusion might be our way to be, get to type one, right? Yeah. Um, and then uh, what was type? Oh, yeah. Type two would be like a Dyson sphere or something. So right? I've, I've actually always thought that was an interesting about the Kardashev scale mm-hmm. um, is that if you have a fusion reactor I guess the sun is a very big fusion reactor so you might as well still build a Dyson sphere but mm-hmm. in some sense building a, a sphere a Dyson sphere is a sphere that goes around the sun and captures all of its energy mm-hmm. um, if you have great little fusion reactors um, 
you maybe don't even need to do that. It's almost a step back. Yeah, it's you're going using, back to solar power. Going back to that, yeah. But then I the, I like this the the type three uh, mastering the the energy output of the galaxy. Um, something about like black hole farming. Someone got the energy <laughs> of the supermassive black hole at the at the center of the galaxy. What would that be? I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I don't know, but I I think that you know. I, Outside of some sort of extreme, you know, physics like that that we haven't discovered yet, fusion's pretty much the best we can do for the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd be we'd be kind of leapfrogging, in my mind, several steps along the scale if we if we had this technology, we we would have a, right. Yeah, pow- power wouldn't be a problem for a long time. Right, we it could sustain technological innovation for the next minimum five hundred years. Yeah, probably, and right? and who knows what you can do when you have you know, more electricity to, to play with like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're limited right now to things that you can do with the amount of electricity we can generate with, you know, coal and nuclear power plants. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have more electricity, people will find new things to do with it. New toys, new gizmos. Right. New ways to get through space, get around the world. Right. I just want to get into space. That's all. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Whatever the minimum amount of uh, advancement is required for me to go to space. Well, and again, ultimately, it's it comes down to energy, right? You need energy to run the factories that build the rockets. You need energy to make the hydrogen and oxygen that fuels those rockets. Mm-hmm. In in a large part, what limits all human activity is the energy that goes into it. Mm-hmm. So I, I see the potential of making cheaper and more abundant energy as kind of influencing everything like that. Yeah, it's just it's lowers the activation energy of every societal uh, activity. Right. Yeah, it's just it, the, the the cost of manufacturing, the cost of living, everything just kind of goes down. I always feel like energy, uh, yeah, well, no, actually, it doesn't really fit the analogy, the energetics of society being money, but with more energy, everything is just cheaper, and then everything just kind of happens. It, if you look back, and, and historically, human society has progressed in leaps and bounds when it's discovered new energy sources. You know, we mm-hmm. obviously benefited a lot from the discovery of fire. Yeah, um, you can definitely see the negatives now of the industrial revolution, but there's no denying that we like progressed technologically as a society right. a lot because of it. Yeah, agriculture first, and right, then, yeah, and then industry. So whenever there's a new source of energy, you know, that allows new things for society. I read something that somebody proposed that every uh, empire um, grow, you know, lives and dies by an energy source, and that America is coal or oil rather and uh with the with the demise of oil the american empire will fade so i i've heard a slightly depressing um way of thinking about human society which is an analogy to yeast Mm -hmm. which grows and uh, eventually uh suffocates on its own excrement and and can and can no and then the entire colony dies if you try and grow Um, and so i've heard this advanced as a analogy for humans that if we continue to burn fossil fuels Mm -hmm. we're going to end up like yeast and 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 not and we're going to basically choke ourselves something like fusion is kind of a a clean shortcut where you can kind of circumnavigate that process and and not keep polluting the world you depend on keep excreting right (laughs) yeah morbid but uh, alarmingly accurate as an analogy (laughs) oh let's not let's not be like yeast you guys that's the slogan let's get on board well i yeah I, i learned a lot here i think um I think fusion. This I can't. I can't be enough of a cheerleader for it. Yeah, 
I hope to figure out a way to communicate about it to the public. I want to make some content and get everybody on board here, uh, be a little bit of that PR campaign. So uh, you keep doing what you're doing. You keep doing what you're doing. And I'll keep trying to tell everyone what you're doing. Thanks. And uh, this was part. This was step one, I guess. So yeah, thanks yeah. for being on the show. Thanks. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.